Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. And welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Dead men don't wear plaid is over, so it's time to figure out what men and women do when they're in love. Steve Martin, am Rigby Reardon in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Will $200 be enough in advance, Mr. Reardon? $200, I'd shoot my grandmother. No criminal is too tough for him. <laughs> No pain is too great. Where'd you learn that? At camp. No joke. Too disgusting. Do I look like a dame? Not as much as I do. I haven't turned on a charm yet. He'll laugh in the face of danger. He'll dace in the fange of laughter. I'm on an important case. I need your help. These people we're dealing with are killers. Oh, thanks for telling me. 
Say something like, uh, no, no, Ma, look, listen to me. He'll do anything in the quest for the elusive Academy Award. Sorry. You'll get action, romance, danger, sliding, animal impressions, comedy. Comedy! Comedy! And drama. When Steve Martin, Rachel Ward, Carl Reiner, and Steve Martin... Schweinhund jerk. Find out why dead men don't wear plaid. You're through. What a guy. I think that's impressive. The people who brought you the jerk try to make it up to you. Okay, Andy, this is another one. We we ended last week and we said, what is this Steve Martin guy doing with all these experimental comedies? Uh, last week was touch and go. If you could even call that a comedy. Right. That was definitely... <laughs> this week was touch and go. Uh, this week, we're back and we have a, a fascinating conceit uh, for how they put this movie together. The question is, did it make you laugh? Well, yeah. I mean, the question is, did it make me laugh, and, and was it any good? Um, Ow! But let's Ow. start with the first Ow. one that you even no, said I'm, that it. No, Ow. I'm not saying it like that. <laughs> it's an interesting experiment of a film, and I found myself chuckling more than I thought I would. Yeah. I think that it's hard to ride a line with a film that is both a an homage to a style and a parody of that style. Mm -hmm. That is a real challenge. And I mean, we've talked about Shaun of the Dead before and how that really kind of worked. Uh, And Edgar Wright really kind of did a great homage to zombie films while also kind of maybe not quite a parody, but certainly turning it into a comedy. This was another challenge for Steve Martin and uh, Carl Reiner and their co-writer, George Geip, to create this story that integrated a bunch of clips from, I think it was it 19 other yeah. uh, film, film noir films and try to make a story that had some sense of, of logic to it um, while also still being funny and, and, you know, allowing Steve Martin to kind of be a funnier character than he was in pennies from heaven. I actually laughed quite a bit. I, I found the the nods to noir to be pretty clever, and some of the lines just, I don't know, they really, they made me laugh. I thought they did a good job with it. Well, I guess that's praise, if not glowing praise from you. Uh, I don't know that I have anything more sort of radiant in terms of my praise, but I enjoyed my time with the movie. It took a, it, it takes longer than, um, you know, other movies of the ilk to, to kind of get into it, you know, to get pedaling at the right gear. And, but once I'm tracking with this movie, I find it delightful. I find it, it really fun. And all I can think about is their, like their creative meetings and, in, in trying to figure out how to pull this thing together. Like what an amazing puzzle. Uh, that that they gave themselves to write a story that still makes sense and to use the gimmick of splicing together these other films uh, and and to make them all work, right? The, the way they end up using Humphrey Bogart across three different Marlowe movies uh, and uh, doing the work. Like it's, it's a work of craftsmanship and, um, you know, gr- as you say, great sort of honor to these films insofar as... It, it's it's really fun to watch. It's almost a museum piece in and of itself um, in as much as it's a comedy. And so um, it's it's easier for me to kind of sit back, like have that out-of-body experience with it um, and and know that as a movie right around in the second act, they almost have more fun splicing together and building sets than they do keeping the narrative thread on the rails. Uh, it kind of <laughs> loses... Like I lose track, I lose track of of what they're actually trying to accomplish, um, and and then it well, gets and, full and, on slapstick kind of thing at the end. The Carl Reiner bit is uh, it it takes it in a kind of a whole new direction. 
Yeah, it it really kind of, uh, it does feel like it's a little bit all over the place as they're trying to sort it out. I mean, Carl Reiner said something uh, akin to the fact that, you know, we we tried to make the plot make as much sense as we could. And in the end, we think we got it somewhere close to the big sleep. And that's okay with us, which I think is pretty funny because, you know, that plot is notoriously convoluted and and nonsensical and hard to understand yeah. and and this one is too i mean there are so many random threads with some of these films that they have incorporated into the movie that i'm like okay so why was cary grant here again yeah. uh, you know where did the where did this fit into because the story? they found the train I, car andy that's all you need to right. know <laughs> What we're talking about here, it is a great thing. We've got to talk about it. If you haven't seen the movie in a long time, right? They actually went and 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 John DeQueer found the train car that they use. What was it? uh, Notorious. Notorious. Uh, They found the train cabin from that scene, and so they were able to do a beautiful composite of Steve Martin actually interacting in a in a cut from uh, from that film with uh, Cary Grant. And it was great. And it was like the high point of the gimmick, of the gag. And I think for me, it actually, at the point it happens in the film, it is absurd that it's Cary Grant. And I know that in my head, but it also gives me a renewed energy for that gimmick, right? Because the gimmick is starting to wear a little bit uh, long in the tooth. And that just that little exchange was like, oh, I, I remember this is still funny. Uh, and, and you need yeah. that. Right. It's like it's, it's a it's a water break uh, on a long race. And, and so I thought it was great. I, I, I felt like it, it I was worried that the pacing was going to get ahead of itself and I was going to just run out of steam with it. And it actually I think it did very well. And that was a suspicion. Not, not notorious. notorious. Right. Right. But, you know, said the wrong Hitchcock. Film. Right. But it was fun, actually, to see Notorious in there. That's why I had it in my head, because of our yeah, right. uh, yeah. fairly recent Bergman series, and uh, delightful to see her in that opening scene. This is one of those films that I would love to actually see them uh, do a restoration, uh, because so many of these noirs have been restored. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it didn't take me out of it, but there were times where they would cut to other footage that definitely was not as uh, well taken care of as some of the other clips were or as the new footage was and so there were times i was like man i i really wish that um you know the studio had taken this and and licensed like i don't know if they relicense it or they can just take restored footage and build it back into it but just to kind of kind of because i think that would really help some of these scenes because it's i mean it's really going to look like they're uh right opposite each other because they did such a great job of building these scenes to actually cut together and uh, you know it's it impressive work that they that they did here. well i think so too and a lot of credit to to the the folks the the sort of technical wizardry we mentioned john uh queer uh who or john de queer who's uh amazing built a ton of sets and like it it took till just now right till watching it for this show that i realized just how many sets he had to build and how many perspectives he had to have on hand and how hard he had to match all these other movies uh and the same credit goes to michael chapman behind the camera and bud mullen editing because like the way they had to end up cutting around the film stock that had deteriorated that hadn't been restored yet to try to match the look and the tone with what they were shooting new um you know i'm with you i noticed and it didn't take me out of the film but i also noticed in many areas where it felt like they were they were doing a fantastic job uh degrading you know to match color and tone i thought it was just great uh you know to actually uh to create a well integrated piece i think it worked it's a lot of work to do this. And I mean, it's it's a fun conceit. And it's the sort of thing that you can see creative people sitting around doing, oh, wouldn't this be great? Yeah. And that's really kind of how it happened is they were sitting around and they're like, oh, wouldn't that be funny if we kind of cut uh, something together where we're opposite, uh, you know, I, I don't know who they started with, Humphrey Bogart. Um, and just kind of play around with that. And it just they're like, oh, we should see if we could run with that. And they did. And they they. Uh, it was a very complicated script to write because they had to find conversations in films that were vague enough where they could kind of find information that they could write the other side of that didn't necessarily uh, have to fit uh, with what the movie was 
pushing them into. And it made for some complicated stuff, but they were able to, I think, find some pretty effective stuff. And yes, it's complicated and convoluted, but it's clear that they are passionate about these films and they're passionate about kind of doing a story like this. And yes, it kind of falls off the rails a little bit and goes a little too far into kind of the broad comedy. But I think they're uh, they're doing a pretty good job with it. I was pretty impressed. Well, and it's it's funny on that point, right? So the movie is it's pretty subdued and there's some weird dalliances with some interesting off kilter humor early on. Um, and then it gets it comes a little bit off the rails as they try to have a lot more fun. It feels like with the integrating of the story and trying keeping it on the rails, it's a little struggle. And then it gets really broad. And while I'm watching it, I'm like, well, this is totally asymptotic to the, you know, to the rest of the movie. I'm not like I'm not in it right now. And yet the final scene between Field Marshal von Kluck and Rigby Reardon as they're trying to out like demonstrate their prowess uh the the field marshal played by um Reiner is trying to um explain his plan while Rigby Reardon the detective is trying to explain the plan that he figure out figured out and <laughs> that sequence is they're trying to mimic one another and at the end they say they start lining up their their words is the thing that i remember the most from the movie and it's the thing that gives me a chuckle like one two three days later like that's the funny part um and and it just so nails carl reiner's uh comedy sensibility um in in a way that i you know you can really see the difference between reiner and and martin in that scene and they're they're just style and what they bring you know how they bring the funny um I did not. One of the things that I thought was interesting in the in the the jerk uh, Martin and it said that you know his objective was to to jam in a joke a page. This movie was much more patient than a joke a page. I mean, there were sequences where you know they were able to leverage some other elements of of the film. Uh, you know, not the least of which the intercutting of old movies. But um, it, it felt a little bit better paced to me in that regard. Did you notice anything around that? There was nothing that stood out to me, but it's hard to say because there were so many elements of the story that seemed to kind of go nowhere because it's just this convoluted detective, you know, story. And like I brought up that Cary Grant example earlier, it's like, you know, he's in a train station, somebody's following him, he goes into the train and it ends up being Cary Grant and they have a conversation. And I'm like, okay, but there, where did, where did that take yeah. us? I oh, don't really Cary know. Cary Grant's a guy on a train. Okay. Yeah. And, and so there were times where I felt like they were, they were kind of buried in trying to get so many of these clips in that it just made for even a more complicated story. And so I wouldn't say that it uh that I had any pacing issues, but I did notice from time to time I'm like, well they could have probably eliminated a couple of those just to make for a stronger story. But I also get Carl Reiner's point. It's like, you know, by making it so complicated and making it have all these red herrings and and dead ends, it does kind of in a way fit the genre. So I'm like, eh, I have a hard time judging it too much on that. Well, that is a really interesting point, right? It, because in in many respects, the joke is the fact that this movie is so full of red herrings, right? Because, I, I mean, yeah, that's, that right. is the big thing you talk about with all of these noir movies, whether it's the Maltese Falcon or the Big Sleep. Like, it's the stuff that you, the MacGuffin, like this movie is just chock full of MacGuffins. Every single one of these characters is a <laughs> MacGuffin for us not to pay attention to. And that is, it's one of the ways this movie is operating on a meta level that is, uh, you know, m so much more sophisticated than its simple, you know, sort of wasted title would indicate. Yeah, what happened with that? That is an interesting story. It, it was, it was cut. Uh, there is in a different uh, in the, one of the earlier cuts, there's a story uh, where Martin's character actually gives the explanation by way of this story about a woman with an obsession with plaid. And uh, she apparently says something like, it's funny that way, to which Martin replies, good, it may save your life because dead men don't wear plaid. Uh, and so that's not in it. Now, 
is the line, does Rigby have a line later where he says, when I arrived in Carlotta, I thought of the words Marlowe had said to me over 15 years ago? Yes. So that is yeah. the line where he's he mentions the conversation that isn't actually had in the film. Um, okay. And so it's it's just plum missing. And that seems like a really interesting thing to let slip out of the film and continue to have the film called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Is that funny? Was that just another layer of joke? Well, it's it's one of those things where I felt like, okay, they're trying to do something with that title, but I'm not sure what it was. And and yeah, so I felt like it could have used a little more to actually make it a joke it that that was funnier. Mm-hmm. It could have used a little backstory because as it is, just having Marlowe say that dead men don't wear plaid. I'm like, okay, but what yeah. does that mean? Is that a reference to something? It's it's an odd line to just kind of throw in there and and leave so generic and it's funny just because it's kind of such an odd line anyway yeah but it's not as funny as it could have it's been. not as kind of funny if you had the setup like just because the setup is you should wear more plaid because dead men don't wear plaid so if you're wearing plaid you're fine right yeah. we need that like that is actually funny and i should go put on some plaid like that's i i like it i like that well maybe it was a problem because he never actually goes and puts on plaid i i, I guess Maybe he needs more plaid. Uh, I, I, in his I'm life. trying to figure out why they might have cut it. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's kind of it's weird. It makes for a great title though. That does feel both a parody and kind of a homage to the film noir that it's kind of pulling from. Yeah. So to that end, the title does have a nice uh, a nice feel to it. It's it's very memorable. It is. It's very memorable. It certainly fits yeah. in the early catalog of Steve Martin movies. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, Carl Reiner and uh, where he is in this whole thing. What do you think of of Reiner? Both because he's he's both directing and obviously uh, he's in it. I I do find as we're kind of watching these films, I I think that his style of humor definitely fits the times, and I think that is probably true of Steve Martin too. Like again, I, I, like there were some breast jokes in this that made me go, wow, I didn't realize this was such a thing in Steve Martin's world at the time because it seemed so prevalent in all the movies so far. Oh, oh Andy, the not just the the breast jokes where you know and and what was he just is fondling the this yeah. woman when she's unconscious and then at one point she faints and faints into his arms. And he kisses her while she's passed out. Like that, yeah. that rings very bad. Right? <laughs> yeah, they, like, they come across as, like as very dated jokes, yeah. very specific to its era. And, you know, it's it's a little frustrating when you have those dropped in here. But it, I mean, you do have to go, okay, it was of its time. That's just, you know, how the humor was at the time. I can't judge it too strongly for those problems. It just, you know, they are a little uncomfortable now. But, you know, I I think largely I struggled with, uh, you know, my balance of, okay, the cleverness of the conceit and the smartness of the parody um, and homage versus just doing silly stuff. And I, I don't know who that's coming from, if that's more of a Reiner thing or a Martin thing. But there are times where there are some just real clever lines that feel exactly like the sort of lines you would have in a film noir that are just just sharp writing, but end up with that comedy twist to them, which I love so much. Um, reminded me a little bit of like Firesign Theater or something like that. Oh, yeah, right. But there are also times that you already brought up when Carl Reiner is, uh, you know, in the end as one of our characters. And it it kind of grows in kind of just this nonsensical comedy a little bit. And I, I struggle trying to juggle. I, I struggle with my juggle on that one <laughs> as far as like what's working and, and what isn't and why is it not? Is it because some of the comedy styling that they're pulling is a little dated now? Or is it just because it it just isn't as strong? And and I don't know who that's coming from, but there were times where I'm like, nah, okay, they 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 could have done something a little smarter here, but they're not. Um, but but honestly, I think it was such a complicated project to put together that I can't help but be impressed with what they have here. And I I try to you know just say you know it's there's a lot of smart in this film anyway, so I'm not judging it too harshly for some of those issues that end up coming up because of the comedy. Other comedies released at the time that performed very well. Um, 
you know, in terms of the kind of sophomoric humor that they that they play with in this movie, Fast Times at Ridgemont High played harder. I'm looking at uh, Wikipedia's the the highest grossing films of 1982. E.T. Uh-huh. is number one, and then Tootsie. So there's yes, there's the first comedy the is number one. two. Then uh, Officer and a Gentleman, Rocky Three, Porky's coming in at number five, Star Trek Two, Forty Eight Hours, Poltergeist, the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, another comedy number nine, and then Annie. So right. there's you know there's room for comedy, and it's definitely a type of comedy. I mean. Tootsie, Porky's, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, they all have kind of uh, kind of this a little bit of a raunchier or not raunchy in all of their cases, but there's there's definitely comedy related to gender yes. in all of those. Right. And I think that that ends up, you know, this this kind of fits that, you know, when you have uh, Steve Martin dressing like Barbara Stanwyck and and posing brilliantly <laughs> in the yeah. double indemnity sequence that had to be one of my favorite things watching steve martin go through the motions of playing barbara stanwick oh and god that, when he shaves his I, leg oh it's almost as good I, as when he shaves his tongue oh well i i didn't <laughs> like that part but but on the whole it's just it was like that was really clever yeah. and funny but also i can see where it's like you know there's there's stuff that fits with what was funny to people in 1982 and some of that is in here. This is that question of, you know, could they ever make this movie the way they made this movie today? Right. With a in a, a purportedly a comedy with a character who is and, a, and an actor who is, uh, you know, gunning for that sort of America's favorite status uh, is could this movie be made this way again? Oh, well, definitely. But it's going to be a different tone. And, and the jokes aren't going to be about fondling a woman's breasts while she's passed out. Um, but they will find ways to ring the humor in mm-hmm. in a way that fits in context of what's going on in today's society. And then the question is, you know, 30 years down the road, how will that fare? Or is it going to feel dated to 2019? Or is it going to feel like fresh and still still funny? It's it's tricky. And this is something I think we're going to continue discussing yeah. as we continue watching Steve Martin's films, because I it's there's an element of it that is him. But also, I do think that it was of the time and we're going to see it in the next film. And I, I have a feeling we'll see it in the other films after that. I just think that it's it's something that uh, that was a part of the time. And also, like you are pointing out. There's something about when you are making an R-rated comedy as opposed to just a PG comedy or something. Mm-hmm. It's, it that tends to mean it's more about sex jokes, right? And that that almost is what it always is that pushes it into our territory as opposed to a different type of smart R jokes. It's just sex jokes. That's really where right. where it is. Right. And, you know, well, and that's why I lean in on the like the breast jokes and the kissing while unconscious jokes like that stuff just rang is not not funny to me now. And and it was one, you know, watching it with my daughter. I was like, yeah. So, you know, that that's she said, yeah, that's not okay. That's it. Like, it's that (laughs) conversation. Like, it just it was it's so obvious uh, how well those or how poorly those elements hold up in an otherwise incredibly clever movie. And that's what makes it unfortunate, because I think this is one of those really clever movies that didn't need that. Yes. I think this is a movie that that had an opportunity to really kind of play that homage parody line that could have just made for such a smart film that would have still been funny and still held up. It didn't need kind of those baser jokes that now, unfortunately, date it and put it in a place where it's like, yeah, I feel a little uncomfortable watching that with my dog. Okay, then I need to ask you the next question, which is, uh, have you heard about the cleaning woman? Cleaning woman! Right? <laughs> like, that's another one where the joke itself, like where he hulks out and goes crazy when he hears the words cleaning woman. I get. Like, I understand it. But we are introduced to that in a way before you kind of understand the humor of the movie right before we get into the full on exchange of of an intercutting of of films 
she, uh, this is uh, Rachel Ward, uh, is playing Juliet Forrest, and Juliet's character comes in and says, you know, I'll have to talk to the cleaning woman or something. And and Steve Martin goes crazy, right? Rigby goes crazy and starts strangling her and throwing her head on the couch. And I, I think that's another one where I wonder if that setup wasn't a, a bit too sort of exaggerated for the payoff of the joke at the end. Like, is there another way to do that? That's another one of those elements that hit me sideways and aged the film dramatically. It was not, uh, it just, I didn't find it funny. And I certainly didn't find the resolution of that scene funny. I felt it was just kind of sad. The thing about that, and I didn't know the story behind it, which I'll let you tell in a second, um, but the without knowing what that story was, it still is a... A thing that I've seen happen before where somebody says a phrase and it turns somebody. And to that end, it mm-hmm. feels very Manchurian Canada. It felt to me like, okay, there's an element of this that does feel like they're pulling from films from the era still. And I, I so I didn't have a huge issue with it, but it was a level of kind of that comedy that also I didn't think held up as strongly, you know, because because for me, I'm like, okay. I get where they're going with this, and it'll probably come into play later, which it, of course, did. Um, but it wasn't anything special. It felt more like, and this isn't one of those elements that felt more like a Carl Reiner um, joke that he pulled from his show of shows days. You know, it, it just felt like an yeah. older style joke that just didn't, it didn't strike me as that funny. And I, I wonder if it could have been architected better on screen for this movie to make us actually laugh at it, because it it has a rich history, right? It's not a rich history, I think, that a lot of people think about when they're watching this movie. I did not make a connection to it. But once you start kind of you you reveal sort of the the history of it, uh, it makes more sense. It's based on a, a vaudeville sketch called Slowly I Turned. And as step you can get from this movie, yeah, it's inch. a. <laughs> a, uh, a, two characters are in a scene and they are uh, slowly but surely telling a story and there is going to be a trigger word that will cause a violent outburst in the other. Uh, and it is a Three Stooges bit. It's an Abbott and Costello bit. It's an I Love Lucy bit. It's uh, um, it's a Danny Thomas and Joey Faye bit in uh, uh, of the Danny Thomas show. Hawkeye Pierce does the uh, references routine in MASH. Uh, it's, it's all over the place. It's everywhere. And once you see it, it's one of those, uh, sort of a, the lenticular postcard of comedic bits. Uh, it's, it's kind of everywhere once you tilt your head just right. And so, uh, and of course, the routine was performed on your show of shows in the 1950s. And Sid Caesar plays the, the guy who gets beaten up and, uh, Imogene Coca is the maniac lamenting her life with Jeffrey the trigger word. Anytime Jeffrey is said, she goes crazy and beats up Sid Caesar. So there you go. There's your show of shows, um, you know, connection. So, yeah. And and so I get it. I can see why they put it in here. Does it work? Not not that well. I mean, it's, there's a little bit of comedy in it because I think Steve Martin just screaming cleaning woman, there's something inherently funny in the way he does it. It's it's still makes me chuckle. Yeah, but and it's funnier when he says Yeah, you know, I mean, the end that end payoff yeah, is right. is cute. Yeah, you know, but it it is uh, kind of a rough uh, way to kind of get there, and super jarring. It does feel like that's an element that pulls us out of a parody of film noir and just goes into just kind of the straight up comedy of the time. And that's yeah. those are the things that they throw in that just don't work as well, unfortunately. But I do appreciate that history. I don't think you need to know the history, but I do I do definitely find more pleasure when I hear it going, oh, okay, there's more thought put into it than I knew, so I appreciate it a little more, but I still don't love it. Well, I yeah, I'm totally with you. And there are a couple of ways that this is that it's beneficial to know the history. First of all, when you're sitting there watching it with people, you're a real smarty when you can start pulling out the connection to a vaudeville gag. <laughs> Everybody's going to want to hang out with you as you're telling them that story while they're watching the movie. Uh, and two, I think it actually, um, you know, it speaks volumes to the the sort of comedic pedigree of these guys, like and what they're the kinds of Easter eggs that they're they're 
kind of in, injecting into this movie. Um, we should say something about Rachel Ward as the, uh, she's not quite the femme fatale in the film, but she's definitely the love interest. Uh, I thought she was fantastic. What'd you think? Oh, I thought she was incredible. And you know, such a contrast to the the Steve Martin humor where he kisses her when she's knocked out. There is a, a bit of body physical humor that she gets to do to him that is fantastic, where every time he gets shot, she has to suck the bullet out of his wound. And he keeps getting shot in the same exact place. <laughs> I love that bit. And it's funny. It's a funny bit of physical innuendo. And she plays it perfectly well. Uh, and uh, just in, in general, her performance just fits right in to the rest of the movie. You think she's coming out of one of the one of the clips. She's that good. Plus, she plays off Steve Martin really well. Like she's a great kind of just deadpan with her humor with lines like when he's dressing up like uh, like Betty Davis, or not Betty Davis, like Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity. And yeah. he's just like, how do I look? And, he, and she's just like, not as good as I would look, you know, because <laughs> she's an actual woman. It's like, yeah. why are we going to these lengths when you have a woman here who could do it? <laughs> so she just, she was great. I really, and I don't know much of Rachel Ward's work, but I was really pleased with her performance throughout this film. Do you want to do you want to talk? Can we just walk through the movies uh, that they use to intercut? I mean, since that's a principal feature of this thing. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you did. You have any favorites? Let's let's walk through the list and see if there are any favorites that you re- that really stood out to you. There's a lot of great films featured in here, and what's what's interesting about this is, uh, like I I had seen clips of this movie before, and inevitably it was. Humphrey Bogart. That seemed to be the one that you know people referenced usually when they were talking about Steve Martin intercut with somebody. It was always him and Humphrey Bogart. Um, I don't remember if I had seen any of the others, but now having like gone to film school and studied film noir, I have a much better sense of these films. And so it's funny to see them cut in here and done relatively well. I really. <laughs> I just really appreciated the way that they did this. Now, I haven't seen all of them, but I'll tell you right now, I have since added all of the ones that I haven't seen to my watch list because now I'm like really curious. I I feel like I want to watch all of these now so that I can have just even that extra step of appreciation for this film. So we have in here, we have, let's see, Alan Ladd pops in from This Gun for Hire. Barbara Stanwyck pops in from Sorry, Wrong Number. Uh, Ray Moland from The Lost Weekend, Ava Gardner from The Killers, and also The Bribe. The Bribe pops up later. Also, Charles Lawton and Vincent Price are also in that one. And Burt Lancaster is also in The Killers. Humphrey Bogart is in The Big Sleep, In a Lonely Place, and Dark Passage. Cary Grant is from Suspicion. Ingrid Bergman in Notorious. Veronica Lake from The Glass Key. Betty Davis from Deception. Lana Turner from Johnny Eager and The Postman Always Rings Twice. Edward Arnold, also from Johnny Eager. Uh, Kirk Douglas from I Walk Alone. Fred McMurray from Double Indemnity. James Cagney from White Heat. Joan Crawford from Humoresque. And... Boy, I tell you, I mean, I've seen a good chunk of those movies, and I think they just, they're clearly passionate about these stories. They they have a lot of fun and do a good job of integrating them. I love seeing these people. And I think Steve Martin, who doesn't always strike me as the perfect person to jump into film noir, <laughs> in fact, he's not the person I would have picked at all, but in the end, he actually plays it really well when he's opposite these people. I, I was really surprised in some of these situations. I'm like, man, that worked really well the way that they intercut totally. those things. They, uh, especially the sequences, like I, I feel like Betty Davis uh, from Deception, that sequence was really great. I loved Jimmy Cagney uh, from White Heat, the way they integrated that. I mean, those yeah. those were just real keystone moments of this film. He had said that he did not watch any film noir uh, uh, while they were actually making this movie, like in prep for this movie. He's, he wanted to try and like be his own character in the in the film, you know, just knowing what he, he knew and he didn't want to end up, you know, just doing uh, a Bogart, you know, throughout the whole thing. And yeah, um, that's yeah. tricky. You don't want to end up kind of just just aping the other actors and kind of how they did their right, especially when you're not sure how they're going to look when you actually see them next to you. You know, um, yeah. So right. it was fun. The other thing that I I really appreciated was the way, uh, you know, I, some of these films, 
I, let's see, what is the range of these films in terms of dates, the earliest to the latest? Uh, I should have looked at this. Uh, let's see. The, the earliest is, I, I think, 42, no, 41 with Johnny Eager and Suspicion. Mm-hmm. And then I think the latest is 1950 with uh, In, a, in lonely a Lonely Place. place. So 41 to 50. So, so almost, almost a decade. decade and I feel of, like you got to yeah. kind of get a sense of that as, as you know, fashion changes and tones change. And uh, it was really fun to see the way they were able to integrate these and make it feel like a, a single thread uh, through all of these movies. I thought that was really great, especially, you know, when we actually see um, Cary Grant, who is just devastatingly handsome uh, in suspicion and uh, uh, see him on the train. It feels like he's, he's just so modern compared to everybody else. Well, and that's an, a good example of one where they actually had to do a little more work to it because in the clip from Suspicion, they also do a some trick photography to actually make it seem like Martin is in the same shot as Cary Grant. It's not right. the typical you know shot reverse shot that they're doing where you have Steve Martin uh, or you have you know you know Humphrey Bogart for example and then you cut to an over the shoulder of somebody who looks like Humphrey Bogart and passes for an over the shoulder in the context of the shot while you're looking at Steve Martin and then kind of cut back to Humphrey Bogart which they do all the time but there is that kind of that sequence with Cary Grant where it's like integrated into the shot and for 1982 I'm like you know they did a pretty good job they did a great job knowing the tools that we like that we could do this now on our like home systems (laughs) you know what I mean like yeah right uh, that uh, that knowing the tools that they had this is a work of incredible craftsmanship and artistry and uh, you know um speaking of that, we should mention a couple of the big uh, names of folks because this is a really interesting movie where the the team, uh, members of the team that brought this movie to us actually worked on some of these original films that that they were in. And in particular, yes. uh, I think the biggest of the big names is Edith Head, the most honored woman in costume design in Academy Award history. 34 nominations, eight wins, costume designer for six of the 18 films in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and ended up doing 20 suits for Steve Martin in this movie, uh, all of them specifically designed to fit perfectly into the scene pairs. That's incredible. Designed designed perfectly to yeah. fit the era, too. Like, they had the, the nice shoulders. Like, everything worked really well uh, to kind of create that look, which was great. And I love that like, the, you already talked about earlier about uh, John DeQueer, the, the uh, production designer, and how he kind of d- built all these sets. But also Michael Chap- Chapman, our director of photography here, he really studied the film noir films and the lighting and how they lit these these films. And then he had to actually like take shots and he had to like create matching lighting in a lot of the opposite angles that that he was showing. So it's an incredible amount of work to kind of cut all this together is crazy. The simplest exchanges, like the very first sequence uh, where this really struck me was the cookie scene. Uh, I can't remember who was that. Is it uh, uh, Cagney that comes in and sits down for a cookie? Or uh, I don't know, maybe that was Alan Ladd. Anyway, he comes in. Cagney is the cookies in jail. Right, right, that's right. right. And so he sits down. Alan Ladd is Alan Ladd is the first thing we see. It wasn't really cookie. So he comes in, and and you have this exchange where Steve Martin says uh, he's already eaten a cookie, and he says, "Oh, have a cookie." And you it it cuts back, and it's like it's so good, it's such a good match that it's you think maybe for a minute, maybe Cagney's one of the ones they got in. Maybe Cagney, maybe he was around. <laughs> maybe he just did this one for him. It's right. it's so it's so good. I would love to know what people who were in this, who were in those old films actually thought, because most of them yeah. were alive. I think probably two thirds of them were still alive. I would love to have had heard totally. their thoughts as to what yeah. they thought of this. Yeah. Sorry. Miklos Rosa did the music. Um and mm-hmm. he had composed scores for four of the films, of the 18 films that are referenced. And this is another one that gets to your point about the work that they had to do, the cleanup that they had to do. With the sound, there were a number of these films that they couldn't separate. They couldn't isolate the sound cues from the original film that they were working with. So he actually had to write music, musical cues that hid the original or or masked the original music that they were, that they were working on, uh, which is a quite a puzzle 
That's just brilliant, the way that somebody can do that, can take the the work that he or other people have done in the past, write a score that actually integrates those moments so you don't hear yeah. the changes uh, when you're going from, from modern to uh, something from the 40s really uh, stellar stuff. And and Rosa already is a great composer for this type of film. And so having him as the composer, it's just really smart. And this is this is when you know that you have a team of people who are passionate about these films and, and want to kind of create something that is special. And while it is funny, it still is uh, reverential to these properties. And you hire people like Edith Head and Miklos Rosa because of their history and how they actually had been involved in films like this. So it's just, it's really, really impressive. He has uh, another one of those stunning list of credits. We've talked about his work before, Spellbound, Double Indemnity, uh, and and others, mm-hmm. but he was one of those uh, one of those guys, walks away with 140 credits in the music department, just cranking out scores. Exceptional work. Yeah, crazy. just crazy. Yeah. Crazy stuff. I know this was a, a such a popular film that it has been remade a number of times. Would you begin outlining, listing the number <laughs> of remakes, please? I would love to know what those remakes are. Uh, this is a film that definitely had its own style. Um, you would find that you know Woody Allen did something very similar uh, the very next year with Zelig where he was kind of integrated into a lot of old footage. I think that that's an interesting one to compare. But And, and while this didn't have a remake, there are other films done in similar styles. Uh, I, you know, you can even, going back to Woody Allen, 1966's What's Up Tiger Lily, where he basically takes another film and kind of recuts it and redubs it to make a totally different film that's all about like finding the perfect recipe for egg salad <laughs> sandwiches or something like that. It's it's uh, a crazy but really fun way to kind of put a film together. Um, then you have a couple other similar ones that I feel like I had heard of these films, but I don't think I really knew that uh, what they, the filmmakers were doing. The first one is La Classe Americaine, which is directed by Michel Hazanavicius, which uh, he won um, uh, Best Director and uh, his film won Best Picture with The Artist, which came out a few years ago, the the retro silent film, which everybody fell in love with. This, uh, The Class Americaine, which is uh, American class, it was a French TV movie, but basically what they did is they took clips of old Warner Brothers movies and created a whole new movie out of it, dubbed by... The people who in France were the ones who always did the voices for those particular actors, which I it's think is really just smart. Brilliant, just brilliant. This is uh, the the you haven't you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Have you? I'm super curious. No, I am too. This is what it says on Wikipedia. The story begins with the death of George Abbott Abbott Ball, played by John Wayne, described as the classiest man in the world, somewhere near the fictitious atoll of Pom Com Galley in the South Pacific. Reporters Dave, played by Paul Newman, Peter, played by Dustin Hoffman, and Stephen, played by Robert Redford, investigate his death by going to meet people who knew him during his life in Texas. They mostly investigate his last words, monde de merde, which is, uh, you know, it's a crappy world, I guess we'll say. Uh, it's a parody of Citizen Kane, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, just looking at the cast, John Wayne, Burt Lancaster, Lana Turner, Jason Robards, Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, Paul Newman, Orson Welles, Martin Balsam, Henry Fonda, Ricky Nelson, Charles Bronson, James <laughs> Stewart, Nelson. Dean Martin, Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra. The list goes on. It is just insane. So I am really curious about seeing this one now. This came out in uh, France in 93. I don't know if we have access to it here, but well, I'm definitely curious. You'll be now. thrilled to know that the class American subtitled is available in its entirety on YouTube. Hey, there you I go. am there all you go. in it. 100%. The other one uh, came out in 2002. It's called Kung Pao Enter the Fist. And I totally remember this, mostly because the poster looked so stupid. And I was like, yeah, I'll never watch that. <laughs> and then I come to find out, okay, Steven, Steve Odekirk actually put it together. It's footage from the 1976 Hong Kong martial arts film Tiger and Crane Fists. And um, and then it's footage of Odekirk, who created kind of 
an original plot that's completely unrelated to the actual story. It sounds like What's Up, Tiger Lily, but then he integrated himself into it as the chosen one. And I <laughs> I just don't know if I want to watch this one because, again, the poster looks so dumb. I, I watched... Um, uh, uh, I'm curious. Though. I watched... I, I became obsessed with it. And I think I can't, I haven't seen the whole thing. But as I was researching this yesterday, uh, I I watched probably 50 minutes of straight clips that were on YouTube, all wow. entirely out of order. So I don't know, that may have actually <laughs> had no impact on my experience of the movie at all. But there's some very funny stuff in there. And uh, it does, it, it makes me curious to see the rest of it. It, it looks very funny. Yeah, so dumb, right, right. dumb, funny. It's a difficult, yeah, 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 right. It's it's a very difficult type of film to do because you are taking footage from other films and you have to create a new story that still fits with the dialogue that they yeah. have done. And uh, so it's obviously not something that there is a lot of. But I, I feel like these guys did it right. I, I, I for the most part, I am pretty impressed with what they pulled off. Here. Me too, and and I'm sure that because of their experience and their craftsmanship going into this, this was a, a lock in for so many awards. So how did it do at the box office? Oh sure. <laughs> well, you know this one swept. <laughs> no, this one actually, uh, this was one of those movies. Just nobody uh, thought much of it at the time when awards rolled around. So not a single nomination for anything, which I guess is good that it didn't yeah, get any like the Razzies. You know, Razzies or anything. Sure. Yeah. Uh, seriously though, so how I count that as a win? <laughs> how did it do uh, at the box office? Well, for the second collaboration between Reiner and Martin, they had a much smaller budget than Martin's last outing, likely due to that film's failure at the box office. For this film, the budget was $9 million, or $23.85 million in today's dollars. The movie opened May 21st, 1982, opposite Fighting Back, the limited release of Annie, and one of our favorites, The Road Warrior. This movie definitely clicked with audiences, opening in the number two spot just behind Conan the Barbarian, which was in its second week. And this didn't fall out of the top 10 until its fourth week. Movie went on to make $18.2 million at the box office, or $48.2 million in today's dollars. That gives the film an adjusted profit per finished minute of $277,000 and gets Reiner and Martin back on the profitable track. That's, uh, you know, honestly, it's a relief to hear because it is, it, it's a smart composition of a film and it's not my favorite of their films together, certainly. I didn't laugh as hard as I have at some other of their films, but it is a movie that I enjoyed my time with and it and I think it's it's worth seeing Again, I would like to introduce this movie to more people. So, uh, again, you, uh, the fact that it didn't win any awards uh, like Razzies, well, that's something. But the fact that it's it's a movie we're still talking about and was smartly architected, that's that's a big deal. Yeah, I uh, I didn't love it, but I was really impressed with what they did here and impressed enough to want to watch all these noirs and then rewatch this just to kind of see how it all plays out uh, when I know a little bit more about the stories in those other films to see if it even matters. I'm just, I, I don't know. I just, I was really impressed with what yeah. they pulled off. So it was, a, it was a fun one. With that, Andy, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this very show. And uh, as soon as you do that, if you swipe over in your show notes, you can tap on the word flick chart and it should take you directly to this movie where you'll see an incredibly uncomfortable poster for the movie. And then you can add it to your list and see how it stacks <laughs> up to ours. It's not great. The one I'm getting is like the newspaper print of him holding her right as he's gearing up to kiss her. Yeah. Yep. Come on. Yep. yep. I know. Yeah. It's tough. All right, here we go. First up, we have Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid or Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, which is still sitting at the middle of our list. Ah. <sighs> I'm torn here because I, I feel like Robin Hood is the better film, but this one I feel like, you know, they were pretty clever with this one. And I don't know, because of that, I feel like I'd want to give it to Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. The hand of fate is reaching in mm. and saying, I shall manipulate you. <laughs> Is what you're saying. I'm not saying that. I'm I'm and I'm totally with you on that. I'm absolutely torn. I think uh, Robin Hood's the better uh, film. It's the the better spectacle, uh, and I'm just not sure if cleverness wins out enough. It's a tricky one, and I'm a little torn. Even even when I say that, I'm like, should should it win? Because I still think Robin Hood is. The yeah, better I, film. 
So I'm okay if we don't go I, with I think Robin Hood is, I think Robin Hood is it. All right, well, then I'll let you. Now, if this were Kung Pao, Enter the Fist. <laughs> We'd have a different, different story for sure. All right, Robin Hood will yeah. take that one. Uh, dead men don't wear plaid or rabid. I'm going to say dead men don't wear plaid. I'll say dead men don't wear plaid. All right, dead men don't wear plaid. Here we go. Or pennies from heaven. Dead men don't wear plaid. Yeah, I'll say dead men don't wear plaid. Dead men don't wear plaid or big fish. Big fish, Andy. I'll say big fish. Dead men don't wear plaid or the producers, the 2005 musical remake. Uh, the producers. Yeah, I'll say the producers. Dead men don't wear plaid or what's up, Doc? I will say what's up, Doc, for sure. What's up, Doc? Yeah. Dead men don't wear plaid or gremlins. I will say gremlins. Yeah. Okay. Gremlins. <laughs> dead men don't wear plaid or no. Dead men don't wear plaid. Yeah, I'll say dead men don't wear plaid. Dead men don't wear plaid or about time. Oh, about time. About time. Well, that puts dead men don't wear plaid in 265 on our chart. 265 out of 428 is about a 38%. Not too high. That is not too high. And it's all that uh, Robin Hood block. Yeah, I know. It's a tricky block right now. Uh, it, it performed much better on my list. How did it do on yours? Better. It, it actually landed right about the 50% mark. 21.21 out of 42.40. So, uh, yeah, pretty much 50%. It hit uh, 398 out of 14.16 on my list, which is a 72%. If I am to go by the algorithm uh, for letterbox.com, that should be a three and a half stars. And that feels about right for me. That's where I landed. Three and a half stars with a heart. Um, I, I think that there are problems with this film, unfortunately, that that really bog it down. But it's hard to pass up. I mean, initially, like on my first watch, I was like, yeah, it's two and a half. Um, but the more I thought about it, I'm like, these guys were so smart yeah. in and, and clever in the way that they integrated this footage and the technical prowess to put it together seamlessly. I'm just like, I'm really impressed on so many levels with this film, even if I had struggles with it. So I, it, that, you know, that really boosted it. So three and a half with a heart. I think that's fair. I totally agree with that. Uh, three and a half with a heart. It, it is a, it, this is one of those films. It's just, it, it's a work of comedic craft and artistry and technical achievement. And it's, it's worth, it's worth seeing, even if you're not, if it's not a joke a page. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean for us, Andy? Now we've we've done this one. Now what do we do? Where, where do we go? We're going here? not too far. I'm, I'm lost, Andy. I'm lost at sea. Please tell me. We are not going too far. We are going uh, just a year into the future. Uh, we're going to be looking at the next, uh, uh, the next collaboration between Carl Reiner and Steve Martin. It is uh, the Man with Two Brains, also co-written by George Geit, who had uh, co-written this one. So. This will be a fun one to explore and and just kind of continue seeing how Reiner and Martin work together as they put this film in place. I think so, too. Uh, and, you know, for now, I need to I can't talk to you anymore because I have to go listen to uh, Nick Danger Third Eye. <laughs> and so should everybody. So should everybody. Right now. Link in the show notes. Uh, that's it, Andy. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. It certainly does. Uh, there there weren't very many one stars. Nope. Nope. Not a lot of people didn't like this movie, which I guess is a good thing. <laughs> That's a good thing. Why, why are we sad about that? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Although I have to say, I, I have a, a bit of a beefy one uh, it, for that was a two star. Do you mind if I Ooh, open I it up? I like that. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, it's a two star from Turf Seer says, it's a gimmicky homage to film noir. I'm wondering what was the point in actually making this movie. I'm sure there was a lot of fun for the filmmakers to blend Steve Martin into classic film noirs, especially in terms of matching the sets. Shouldn't it be films noir? Hmm. <laughs> I don't mean to edit you, turf seer. <laughs> 
but I do. Uh, especially in terms of matching the sets, the stand-ins, and the musical score, but such cleverness doesn't extend to the actual script which didn't have much of a story. Many of the scenes seemed completely extraneous to the plot designed to merely show off the great actors of yesteryear. At best, Steve Martin's goofy humor is only mildly amusing. The best jokes are trotted out more than once. For example, Rigby's cleaning woman tantrum and Rachel Ward sucking out the bullet from Rigby's arm. But for the most part, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid is not funny at all. The main problem is that no real dramatic interplay develops in the story because the story is basically a gimmick. Steve Martin merely interacts with a bunch of film clips and is not pitted against any significantly developed antagonists. The B story, the love story between Martin and Ward, is simply a collection of juvenile sexual innuendos. For example, when Martin grabs Ward's breasts in the opening scene, if you take away all of Steve Martin's silly asides, you're pretty much left with a standard by the numbers film noir, thoroughly mediocre and uninspired. Ooh. What do Yow. you say to that, sir? I say woof. Yeah. I say woof. <laughs> it's a it's a woof of a review, and you know he's got some points. Yeah, there's points. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I, it's unfortunate that uh, yeah, I agree a little bit, sir. Just a little bit. Yeah, right, and right. I still liked it a lot more than you did. What do you got? <laughs> I've got a one star by Verocious Reader BT who says, oh, I can already tell where this is going. That's right. Reader. That's right. Who says, don't waste your time on this one. Very short and sweet. But the reason that I picked it is because of the comment by Gary Daniel, who wrote back too late. I already read your review. You were talking about your review, weren't you? Oh, oh snap that was like meta humor oh he totally oh i get yeah. it good stuff good stuff thanks amazon i've been podcasting since 2006 in that time i've tried countless hosting platforms but in august 2022 we switched to transistor to power all of our shows here at true story fm and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 